0: Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. We were lucky enough to host Spike Lee in conversation with Sam Mendes, where they talked about Spike's film *The Five Bloods. Spike and Sam treated us to a fascinating discussion of the different cinematic elements employed in *The Five Bloods. From aspect ratios to soundtrack, performance to script, this was a whirlwind tour of a fantastic film, available to watch on Netflix now. We hope you enjoy the podcast.
1: Thanks for watching everyone. Um, a great, great pleasure and an honor to be talking to the great Spike Lee. I remember, I vividly remember my first experience of Spike Lee movie, Do the Right Thing, which I saw twice on two successive nights and then listened endlessly to the soundtrack on that little cassette in my car. It must have been like 87, was it 87, 88? can't remember. Summer so,
0: 1989.
1: Yeah, 89, oh that's, of course it was. Yeah, as a, in the Public Enemy nun. So. Yeah. Uh, And since then, so many great movies, but Malcolm X, 25th Hour, Inside Man, Black Klansman, my personal favorite. He knows this. I've told him already. He got game and so many other movies. And now this extraordinary film. So a huge pleasure to to introduce great artist, Crusader, (laughs) Survivor, (laughs) Cineast, Maestro
0: Spike Lee. Welcome. Well, well, I want to... Thank you for doing this and uh, your films. You're, you're, look, you're a great filmmaker too. And I just think that it's, it's, it's wonderful that the directors out there, they're eavesdropping. <laughs> so this is me and you. You know, we're just shooting the shit, you know, and and, and, and I love talking to Filmmakers who you know, I, 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 I dig because it, it, it's just like what I always get is like the love that you have for the, the, the person's films, and also just talking the love of cinema. Yeah, so
1: yeah, I'm, well, I'm Sam, I'm geek. Uh, <laughs> I have a lot of questions because I do okay. think this is the most extraordinary film. So, uh, but I, I want to start at the very beginning. With, I'm going to ask about the movie, and then I'm also going to ask about, because we're talking about directing in front of other directors, I'm going to talk about your process, and mm-hmm. I'm going to ask you some really nerdy, geeky questions about, about how you are on set and how you it, handle production and it, all sorts of things. But before we do, just all give, ask give, me kind of, give me the kind of background of, of the genesis of this whole project, how long you wanted to make it, why you made it now, and, and how it came about.
0: The, ri- the original script was written on spec. By Danny Bilson and the late Paul DeMeo. Paul passed before this film before we began. Before we began the shoot, they did the film Rocketeer. Their producer Lloyd Levin took it the option script and took it to Oliver Stone. I mean, a Vietnam film—you're gonna take it Oliver. <laughs> and Oliver had it for two years and. I've asked him, several people, I can't get an answer why, what happened, you know. Right. So I just, I, I call him up. I just, you know, you know, I'm leaving it alone. He doesn't want to talk about it. Lloyd called me right before I was getting ready to sh- shoot, going to production on Black Klansman. Sent me the script, I liked it. Then I brought in my co- writer, Kevin Wilmot, and we met with Lori said, well, "We want to do this. You know, here's the thing, though. Kevin and I came in to rewrite it, but if this if that script was not up to snuff, I would we wouldn't. I mean, so that, a lot was there. Yeah. I mean, Chris here, Madre, all. Oh, I mean, that stuff, the father son stuff was there. But the the thing that I told Kevin, which he agreed, I said, we got we got to flip this. We have. We're gonna do it if we're gonna do this." We have to make this from the viewpoint of the African American soldiers who fought in that moral war. So we rewrote it. Again, note that the original script was great. But we, we just we just had to flip it. But
1: did you have this extraordinary idea of, of of the the actors not playing their younger selves? You know as other actors but playing it as themselves their memory as it were is exactly. present in the flashback so it's both flashback and memory simultaneously in the most extraordinary way because particularly because the Chadwick Boseman character arrives later on you know for to Paul to Delroy Lindo so the whole thing has a kind of slightly fantastical edge to it which gives it a dimension that the movie you mentioned which is it's obvious you know predecessor, which is which is Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which it, to which it owes a, a debt, but it's it's quite different from it in many ways as well, because it's a much more flamboyant picture in a way, and that's quite daring with a with a
0: with a war movie in a, in a genre film. So we had to do this film for a price, Sam, and to use special effects for the de aging would added hundred million dollars plus <laughs> so that was out the window yeah. also very I can't recall a film I saw that was successful where they cast to me the younger version yeah. of the main actors half the time you're trying to figure out the, who who's this guy supposed to be with you know this one you know it, it but like you said though, I respect what you alluded to. I respect the intelligence of the audience. And the first time it happened, I knew it might be jarring. But I knew they would get it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I
0: knew they would get it. It's the memory.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that it works incredibly well. There's another character in the movie, isn't there, which is Marvin Gaye. Um, And he is... (laughs) he suffuses this movie. He was even the whole music just now for the people who, who logged in, right? <laughs> because, <laughs> because, you know, he's, he's celebrated and, and you know, you use music extraordinarily well in all your movies. Thank you. But really this suffuses the movie beyond just Needle Drop and, and using him as source music. You know, they, they really are in many ways dramatizing songs by Marvin Gaye. Do you want to talk a little bit about how yes. that influenced the making of the picture?
0: Thank you. In my opinion, Marvin Gaye's album, What's Going On, is one of the greatest albums ever made. Marvin had an older brother named Franklin. He did three tours in Vietnam. He was a radio operator. Mm -hmm. He was writing Marvin all the time about the horrors he was witnessing in Vietnam. Marvin's reading those letters, plus Marvin's in Detroit. He's in, he's in Motown. He's seen the bloods come back from Vietnam, all fucked up. So I think those two things combined mm-hmm. could have been impetus for this album. The album came out seventy one, so the war is still going on. So you know, this is an album these guys are listening to, yeah. black and white soldiers in uh in Vietnam. So. Sam, you hit it. it. It Marvins another character, a voice one of my and also one of my favorite scenes in the film is when we have the historical figure Hanoi Hannah. This is not made up. Yeah, <laughs> Here we lived. And I did a World War II film called Miracle St Anna. We had the Nazi version of that. Her name was Axis Sally. And the Japanese had a version of that called Tokyo Rose. So the radio, where they played popular American music, the soldiers listened to these, they listened to Acts of Sally, they listened to Tokyo Rose, they listened to Oi Hanna, they hear the music. Mm. But between the songs was when they were dropping the propaganda. <laughs> yeah. And what you hear in that scene is on YouTube, her actual recording. Wow. So I only only moved a couple of words. Wow. The black soldiers found out about Dr. Martin Luther King being assassinated two days later. Wow. After the fact. Yeah. And they were also being told that your sisters and brothers are burning shit down. 120 cities in America were aflame after the assassination of Dr. King. And a story which is not told, which we allude to in the scene, the black soldiers were about to wreck shit. There was about to be revolt. Mm. They're about to start shooting, and it wasn't going to be at the Viacom. <laughs> no. It came very close. And they didn't, you know, they try to keep it low low. I had four screenings for Black and Puerto Rican Vietnam vets before we locked the picture. And they all said, "Spike, that shit about Dr. King." They said that shit's the truth. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. said shit. They said it was about the 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 the, the jump off. I mean, does it surprise
1: you or are you unsurprised at the fact that, you know, as Ted Sarandos said, there has no, there has been no movie about the black experience in Vietnam until now. Does it, did do you find that sort of thing, ah, uh, you know, I mean, do you find that extraordinary or do you find it unsurprising and, and how do you feel those soldiers have been treated by society since then? Well,
0: Number one as you did, you see the film, I got mad love for my brother, Francis Ford. <laughs> and we were several out front fingers pointing at the side of the screen. Look at this. <laughs> at club. That's a real club in Ho Chi Minh City. I, that's not a set. That is the most popular club disco bar in Ho Chi Minh City. It's called Apocalypse Now.
1: <laughs> That's crazy.
0: Another, the more jokingly homage, is having, using uh, Wagner's yeah, ride the uh, Valkyrie with the boat. <laughs> <I> <laughs> it's not that. Robert Duvall. No, the <laughs>
1: boat's going quite slowly, which I think is quite funny. Like, it's quite it's quite stately, the whole thing. And there's this ride of the Valkyrie. But so that yeah, was really... That was really you know
0: yeah.
1: cheeky is that, is that a British term very funny but, cheeky. but, but, but the, the the variety of tones and the and the, the, the the skill and the re- relaxation with which you with, with which you're working as a, as a fellow director you know what I mean the sense in which you you feel like you can almost do anything go anywhere um, it's the feeling you get when a directors at the top of their game thank you now oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna have old guys so I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, use other, I'm gonna use still photographs. I'm gonna use news footage. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have an extraordinary. By the way, this is something we want to talk about. Extraordinary score from Terence Blanchard. But yeah. At the same time, I'm, I'm gonna weave in different musical landscapes and counterpoint. I'm gonna yeah. use music, you know, and I'm also gonna use indigenous music because there's, a, there's a great track towards the end, um, yeah. which is, which is much more Eastern influenced, you know, Vietnamese style music. What I would call. So I found all that amazing, amazingly, as, as if everything is at your fingertips. Do you, I, you don't strike me as somebody who agonizes over decisions, right? It feels to me like you just like, you just know what you want and you go for it. And there's a kind of sense in which you carry everyone with you. Would you say that's true?
0: Well, somewhat. I mean, I don't, I don't want to give depression to our directors, sir. <laughs> that I'm just throwing shit up against the wall. but. <laughs> We, we work it out in the editor room, and I like to say the editor on the film is a young British lad. Oh. His name is Adam Good, and he was the co-editor on Roma. Wow. So I stole Robonzo. Yeah. <laughs> well, steal from the best. That's
1: what they say, but you know, he's yeah. uh, a he's British there. lad. So it was, first wo- it was the first
0: time working with, his, with, with Adam? Yes. And we'll, here's the thing, we'll, we'll try anything in the editing room, but it doesn't work. You know? <laughs> there are many things we tried that didn't work. <laughs> so they will never see the light of day.
1: Yeah, but there's a lot of stuff that's, that's in, in the fabric of the film. So for example, you're using direct address. I mean, that section where he's going kind of insane in the, in the jungle, and he's talking to himself, but to us. And you, you, you take us down a rabbit hole. It's an amazingly bravura piece of acting. Yeah. We'll talk about Delroy, and but also filmmaking because you know you're breaking all sorts of rules, and, and it feels absolutely right and in tune with the rest of the movie. It doesn't feel like it, 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 it feels. It doesn't feel wrong, you know. And that's that's really amazing. I want
0: to go to a word you said. Can I can I bring back a run back a word you said?
1: Yeah, go for it. <laughs>
0: You said rules. Yeah, exactly. There are no rules. <laughs> well, I think what I tell my students, sir, is that let's at least learn rules first and then let go of them. Mm. Yeah. So I think one of the worst things that ours can do is put handcuffs on ourselves. Were you told by various people, studio heads, <laughs> of what the audience will like and what they don't like? And I've been doing this for, four du- for decades. They don't know. They don't know. They don't know. Yeah. So. I I found myself, I don't want to restrict myself where I have to have, all right, this is my narrative hat, and now this is my documentary hat. And so, why can't one, you're trying to express yourself, but also, here's the thing though everything I do, my brother, is for the story. so I'm not just trying to do shit like me showing off in film school. I did that already. <laughs> A couple years out of film school, I mean, that's the origin of the double belly shot. Me and, Earl, me and Ernest Dickinson were just showing off. But now we use that shot. It has to be motivated.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. Before yeah. we just show it off. So everything I do, it has to be to tell, this, to tell a story, and also tell a story a different way.
1: You, you're talking a little
0: bit about- Because that interests me.
1: You've got, a, you've got a new relationship with an editor, but you're talking about the visual language of the film and the daring of it. Talk a little bit about your relationship with Tommy Siegel, and, and you know, which has been now long and very, very fruitful.
0: Well, we've only worked one
1: time before. Oh, I thought you'd worked many more times than that. No, this is the first time.
0: Commercial. So, great, great, great cinematographer. He did not have a lot of prep time because he had just, shot, he just finished shooting a film for Netflix in uh, Thailand. So, he's uh, he has an eye. He's a shooter. And also when I would say something crazy, he would say, let's try it. <laughs> let's use different aspect ratios. Yeah. Let's shoot. Let's have one of the actors have a super great camera with them that we incorporate this stuff. And that same actor has a still camera, which we incorporate. And, and, and you know, in fact, those pictures taken by my brother, who's a still, unit photographer. Yeah,
1: great photos,
0: actually. I, I was, <laughs> was going to ask that. Yeah. And let's just try different ways i mean the scene i love where the, where we cut the completely black and then
1: yeah yeah the way that you shift and the way that you shift aspect ratios is, is just you know it's just it's just incredibly stylish <laughs> and it's just pleasurable to watch apart from anything else as well as being good storytelling because yeah. you know you're going back in time and you know you're being you have been you're being led by a, a someone with a real sense of purpose and and I don't know, it just feels the boldness of it matches the way in which the story pans out. Talk a li- I'm, I'm going to ask you now a little bit about, about, you know, the way that you work as a director. Uh, and I, I, I love, you know, I love hearing about the kind of knitting. How the director work. works. Yeah, I want to <laughs> know, like, for example, okay, how much you use the monitor screen? You know, uh, are you the first on set? Are you the last? Uh, uh, do, you, do you work it out in advance? Are you someone who who you know, likes to see the set, uh, likes to see the, the scene on set and then works it out on their feet. How much do you storyboard? All those sorts of things. So how do you approach a day? What? Well, give me an example of a, of a day on a Spike Lee movie set.
0: Okay. And I like the preface by saying for the, for the directors that are watching us. And I say this to my class, my students. When you ask me questions and I describe it, that's how I do it. But it, not, it might not work for you. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think that's important. Just You got to find how you work. So I'm going to talk about how I work. I'm the first person on the set. I like to have, I like to come prepared. And that's not to say we can't improvise. But very rarely do I want to be in a position where we're figuring stuff out on the day the bulk the bulk of this film was shot in in the jungles of Thailand. Very few days were not hundred degrees plus. That is not the time. <laughs> Standing around we're discussing uh. character motivation and <laughs> hell no. We had a two week. Boot camp that was incorporated into rehearsal. So we're all sitting down, we're going over the script. Everybody, if they have, if they want to put in words they think they might be better coming out of their mouth, I'm cool with it. I don't have to, it to be exact, you know, the exact same word, but the same feeling. I have a shot list. The beginning, first thing today is. I have a meeting while the actors are getting where they're doing. AD, script supervisor, key grip, gaffer, DP. Here's my list. Here's what we got to shoot today. Produ- also, costume designer, production designer, Wynn Thomas. I should have said everybody's names. Please forgive me. So now people know what they have to do. One of the worst things I think a director can do is not give people information. Yeah. Because if they don't get information, they're not going to say, Spike, you know what? This might be better. And you work with the great one of the greatest DPs ever. Roger. So, Spike, the scene you want, you know, maybe we shouldn't do it first thing in the morning. Think about it, you know, because we're looking at, we're on the set. You know, you could be on the set for like preps, but it's different on the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a whole, you know what I'm talking about. So we get, here's, and then this then the order. Here's the order of how we're going to do this. And so I might have an order, but it gets changed by input of the DP, Anybody can change input if they have information that's going to help. And then if there's one thing, Sam, our, our, our directors should listen to, this should be it. You can't, you got to get your first shot in the, within an hour. <laughs> Unless it's some elaborate, crazy shit. Get your first shot done an hour or less after call. What happens if you don't? You fall behind and you rarely catch up. You fall behind, that means you're not getting your days. You're not getting your days. You're behind schedule, which is not a good thing. (laughs) <laughs> That's very good. All um, people involved. <laughs> now, do you do you?
1: Uh, because I remember, I remember Sydney lamette saying, uh "You know, uh, he liked to start a uh, shoot with uh, a simple thing, like some guy, someone walking down a corridor or whatever. And mm. if he could, he would say he would take, he would do, he would, he would print the first take and move on, and that would put the shits right up the crew because they would think immediately, oh my god, we have to be." We have to focus. We're not going to do multiple takes, um, and w- and almost always that trick has w- had worked, and, and the movies had worked out. Th- those particular movies had worked out well, but um, do you? And in terms of the vibe on set, do you play music? Do you do you? Um, is there a sense of like you know between setups a bit of relaxation? Do you like to keep things pushing forward? And and how is your relationship with your ad in terms of getting getting people up and amped up? Uh, is, People are on a pitch in this movie. People are up here a lot of the time. It's very it's extreme experiences, people are having to act, you know?
0: No music was played unless we it was needed for playback on my but, sets. Yeah. You know, and, and I'm a taskmaster. People, excuse my profanity. We're in a motherfucking jungle. <laughs> it's 100 motherfucking degrees. <laughs> Put the motherfucking camera right there. And let's get the motherfucking (laughs) shot. We got to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sorry. (laughs) But sometimes a film set is very tense. And when you have, it's a miracle even if any film is finished. (laughs) Yeah. I swear to God, you know, and yeah. sometimes I'm like, how did I do that?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I know. It's it the different ways in which you can fail. It, it, and yeah. as you get older, of course, you, you know more and more ways in which you can fail. So the idea of actually making a movie seems more and more preposterous as you get older. But mm-hmm. when you're younger, it's like, oh, this, is, this is quite straightforward. Just um, let's talk a little bit about Terence Blanchard and the music and, and the way you use music in your pictures, because that's one of the things that defines you as a filmmaker. And... This is an amazing score, horn, French horns and snares. It's got a slightly military aspect. It's a full orchestra. You know, there's, 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 a, lot, there's a lot of it. Do you start with themes and, and try them out in scenes? Do you, do you get him to score it very accurately to the scene? Because it seems to me that the music often makes you feel a kind of sadness that this, this, the, 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 the whole thing is happening. That sort of melancholy suffuses the movie so you're not mickey mousing the scenes you're not you're not just uh scoring the individual moments but there's mm-hmm. a sense of deep sadness that this happened in the first place and that these people have been put into this situation so when you watch paul as a character and del Rolindo, you, you you're watching someone who who has been destroyed by his experiences um and so you you somehow look at him with with charity with 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 generosity you don't you don't find him unpleasant, you find him heartbreaking. And now a lot of that comes from the music as well as his brilliant performance. Yeah.
0: Well, Terence, first of all, is a great jazz trumpeter and composer. My father is a film composer. My father started out as a jazz bassist, then a jazz, then, excuse me, then a folk bassist. My father, Bill Lee, was a go-to bassist during the folk era. He played on albums with Bob Dylan, wow. Peter Paul and Mary, Gordon Lightfoot, Odetta, Leon Bibb. I mean, he was the guy. And then Bob Dylan decided he wanted to go electric. <laughs> and that's when mother had to work, because wow. my father refused to play electric bass. I mean, we were living good, the wow. leagues growing up in Brooklyn. And then my mother had to start teaching cause my father, he had five kids. I'm the oldest. And he was not, he was not gonna play an electric bass He's a purist. And if we had the lights turned off and the gas turned off, he didn't give a fuck. My mother really had to she became the breadwinner. Once I got into film school, I used my father. My father did scores for my NY student films. My father did score, but she's going to have it. My father did the score for uh, school days. My father did the score for do the right thing. My father did the score for more better blues on the she's gonna on the school day soundtrack. That's when my father started to use Branford and Wynton Marsalis because they moved up, they moved up from New Orleans to my neighborhood in Brooklyn. Yeah, and so that's where the transition was made from my father to Terrence, because he was playing trumpet on my father's scores, and he's been doing my scores ever since. So, you know, for me, for me, I know I keep repeating myself, I just want to make sure that these opinions are mine. For me, music is just as important as the script, the acting, the editing, the production design, the costume design, because Sam, as you know, it's another tool we have to tell the story. And everybody doesn't work this way. I mean, I've heard some directors like the last thing they do is get the 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 the, the music, you know, the who gonna get the score? <laughs> yeah. The films, they got a cut already. Yeah. And now it's like, Yeah, that seems absolutely yeah. bizarre to me as well. That's that's that total disrespect, yeah, to what music can do for you. So Terrence gets the script. gets the script along with everybody, all the department heads, and I cut. You know, we were cutting the film while we were in Thailand and Vietnam. So he's getting scenes. Yeah, he gets the first cut. He lives in New Orleans. We fly them up to New York, and we sit down and have a spotting session. where We watch the whole film through, and then we have break for lunch, and we come back, and we, I tell them where I, where I want music to start and finish. But it's more than that. I'm trying to, I try to convey, but I mean, you have to be careful. Great, great art. You can't tell them I want this, 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 this. You can try to get in the field. So I tell Terrence where I want the scene to, uh, the music, the the cue to start and finish, and then what should be the color. Ladies and gentlemen, instruments have different colors. (laughs) So by me telling Terrence the color, it gives him the range of saying, I want this to be a, Dun 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 dun! Nah nah nah! <laughs> if I did that, seriously, Spike, shut the fuck up! But <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, just like you, your relation, you're your relation. You're a composer. Yeah,
1: you have it, but you have a shorthand. But I do find that the most difficult thing in the world is to try and is to try and describe music because you know you you. you you try not to describe the effect of music. You don't want to say, I want something moving here, or I want something, you know, you have to find another language for it. It's and, hard. And, and having someone who intuits and knows your own taste is, is obviously crucial, but this is an extraordinary score. I mean, this
0: is a- no, that's great. A, is a, and a, a and another score. thing i like to say is that one thing Terence hates, to hear that temp score. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So when you, but that's an important point because so when you play when you watch through for that spotting session, are you watching a movie with nothing on it at all?
0: At that point, other than the point. But then later on, once once we have a a, you know like a a cut that's not locked, but then then uh, in a later period, temp music is in and sometimes my, my choice of temp music, I could tell he's like, hey, he's playing it cool, like. But I know he's like, what the f-?
1: Yeah, I think all composers are pretty much the same. They're like, they have to put themselves through the hell of listening either to someone else's music or to their own music that you've you've culled from other movies and it's, which is a kind of, you know, it's like a-, a, a... Oh, I got a story. I got a
0: story. okay. There's a queue called Photo Ops, which I love. That's in Inside Man. I used it on my two Katrina docs. Then it's in the, me and Terrence had a big, big, big discussion because for the end of, I used that cue again, I wanted to use that cue again for the final scene in Black Klansman. Mm. Wow. This is the fourth time, and he was like, Spike, because he had written some for it already, right. which I used, but used in a different spot. I said, Terrence, no one's gonna think that this is there because you run out of ideals that I just knew that piece will work with the final scene in Charlottesville. So that's the only time we had a discussion about a piece of music.
1: Let, let's talk a little bit about the actors and particularly about Delroy and your relationship with him over the years and whether you wrote with him in mind, how you developed the part together and, and when he has those amazing you know, solo moments, whether that was something that was
0: semi improvised or fully scripted. Delroy, yeah, his performance. This is this is fourth film I have done with Delroy. Yeah, you have a you have a For long first experience. time was Weston Archie in uh, Malcolm X. Then he played my I I get the order mixed up, but he played my father, the one I was talking about, the composer, in Crooklyn, and he played the drug kingpin in uh, Clockers. He comes from the States. In fact, Doroy was born. I mean, he's he's born in England. Is he? Oh, yes. And, and came to uh, the States with the, the study theater. Usually it's all the way around. Amazing actor. And he almost wasn't in the film because he had a problem wearing that hat. Wow. Well, I don't blame him. And he says, Spike, can you just make this guy a neoconservative? I said, I can't do that. So he said, let me think about it. And he came back and said, came back and worked it out within his whole thing where he could play that character. And I'm going to say this, the rest is history. Because, woo Lord, I mean. (laughs)
1: <laughs> He's channeling something there.
0: Oh yes, you know. And, 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 the, and those the, the scenes you're talking about were to the camera. Those are scripted, right? Yeah, I mean it seemed to be, but you know he was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like any great performance, it he, he was in his zone. Yeah, he was. In I his mean, own. because they were like between takes, people like going makeup. I say, leave alone. Nah, 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 nah. He's, he's good. He's good. Leave him alone. Leave him alone. You know, make him do that. We're getting ready to shoot. Here, makeup. Can we get a touch up? No fucking touch ups. Leave him alone. He's in the zone. Put the camp, put the slate in. Let's go. He's hot. Yeah. <laughs> because Del he was like spike. But he, you know, we we rolling. You don't want a, a, a 20 minute thing before the, we do the next take. He was on fire. And that was without the
1: 100 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> he was on fire in every possible respect. Um, so, th- there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's several great lines in the movie, but one I actually wrote down, so I thought, Jesus. After you've been in a war, you understand it never ends. Which seems, in a way, also to, to be about all your other movies, too. And, and now, I, I thought, and, and having just made a war movie, Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean... It, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa.
0: You made a great... Let's all hold, hold on a second, people. <laughs> you made a great war movie. Thank you, Christ. And I told you, I tracked you down. <laughs> you,
1: you tracked me down. You I, found you, me. I said, you found we, me my where my brother is. Yeah. <laughs> but you know... <laughs> I, it's, it's, I know somewhere We're going to track him down. <laughs> but, but joking aside, there's nothing... I mean, you know, you forget all all responses to your own movies, but when a filmmaker you admire sends you a little email or a note, it, it, you remember always. And, and and that was the case you know, you. with, with your response to 1917. But I, I, I felt like that line somehow, um, and the sense in which you're bound up, whether your history, whether you like it or not, is is one of the things that's most remarkable about you as an artist is that you, you know that you're walking into the fire, time after time but you do it you feel there's some there's something obviously there's a fire in you um, it started very early you know do the right thing is you know we, we remember the, the the primary colors the music the performance by Spike Lee the first performance by all sorts of great actors who you'd never seen before but it is a powerful movie about race and and uh, that's really what the movie is about, and you 've really not knocked that up uh, in a way that's beyond i mean you know I can think of very few filmmakers who've been who who've, who've managed to harness that central energy that 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 passion that anger. somebody like Ken Loach in my country is is probably an equivalent in a way, still fueled by that sense of social injustice you know um, and and just un- unable to think about this is who I am as an artist, that the person and the work are indivisible, right? You you, you never get the feeling that Spike's sitting around thinking, hmm, what do I do next? What what would people like to see? You know, it's like, no, no, this is what I have to say right
0: now. Would you say that that's true? (laughs) Well, it's true sometimes. You know where... Sam, you you know better than me that sometimes things... You're given, sometimes things fall out of the, the sky and I try to go with the flow, you know? And here's the thing that really grounds me and I tell it to my students. I am blessed because I'm doing what I love. The majority of people on this God's earth go to their grave hating their fucking job. Every morning, get up go to the job you hate the job people there hate you you hate them but you're going to do what you got to do you're not going to let your children starve you're going to keep you know roof overheads and clothes on backs and you know you love your family but outside of that you know it's very hard to, to have joy in your heart if you hate your jobs and people do this the whole life, and I'm not just talking about a coal mine either. I mean, you know, it's just pushing to be pushing papers. So when you were able to do something that you love to do, that that you would do it for free. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's not too business like you're too casual. <laughs> um.
1: Are you someone who, who, who can stop? Do you, do you have periods where you just think, I, I'm done, I need, because you're, you know, you're going on all cylinders. You've got your documentary just came out. You know, you've got these, you know, you've, you've got a company. I mean, do you find that, that you need peace ever or that your energy breeds more energy? Well, I have a different answer now that we're in a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wasn't <laughs> talking about actually right now at this moment. But how does it make you feel? And does it make you feel differently
0: about your work? And, and we talked about this before because uh, I had the pleasure of having a Zoom class with you, with my class. I had a pleasure of having a Zoom class with Jim Jarmusch. And both you and Jim said you had not written one word. I no, failed. Absolutely during this whole <laughs> pandemic. I am creative. I haven't written one word either. And I thought that I also have at least one script. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't written one single word. So this is the first time, really, since 1985, where I've been not doing, you know, working. And how does it feel? Well, I feel bad because I, I mean, you, I'm taking in why I'm not why we're, nobody's working. That twenty over twenty two thousand people died here in New York City. And here's another thing I like to say, like I've been doing and, and, and it's you know this from you now when you do, I know you must have been done more interviews for James Bond than I'm doing, and You know you gotta do a lot, and here's the thing, and, and people have asked me during these, you know, these interviews, are you uh, upset that because of the Corona-19 virus that you were not, you could not go to Con and be the president of the jury? Are you upset that the world premiere of the Five Bloods was not in Con, out of competition? And here's where I answer that question, Sam. I said, you know what? There are 22,000 people in New York had plans. They're dead. People have the people who died. All of them had plans. So I'm gonna be, I'm gonna try to be the last one <laughs> to complain about, you know, anything, because I'm alive. And thank God, my wife's alive, my two kids, and immediate uh, family. Because a lot of people are not here. And and one day we're gonna see, we're gonna see the documentaries and the feature films, novels, albums that are gonna tell the truth about what really happened, who didn't do what,
1: and people died. You say we're the lucky ones because we're still here, but you know, uh, w- w- in this case we're lucky because you're still here. And so we should probably wrap up by saying that, you know, it's an absolute pleasure. You know, uh, you're, you're uh, you know, one of a kind. And um, it's an honor to, to just ask you a few questions. And thank you for your movie. And if you haven't seen it out there, you really should. It's not difficult, you just have to press a button. <laughs> there it is on your big screen Um, and if you have I would advise you to watch it again because I'm I'm going to so thanks, bye
0: This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes Soundcloud, Spotify or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members Find out more about us at directors.uk.com